step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Years ago, H.G. Wells visualized roads such as these in his science fiction fantasies. And today they're a reality. You're listening to the Afternoon Commute with John Adams and Chris Kendall. I'll just say it's uh, March 23rd, 2015, and this is uh, Afternoon Commute with John Adams, and we got Joe Atwill riding along with us here. Um, uh, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background uh, to start out with? Sure. Um, I mean, uh, um, best known for being a writer, I wrote uh, Caesar's Messiah, Roman Conspiracy to Invent Jesus, made into a documentary of the same name. I also wrote uh, Shakespeare's Secret Messiah, which gives a, a different interpretive framework for the Shakespearean literature. Um, my business background is primarily in uh, computer software, uh, but haven't really done any of that quite a while. And um, I grew up in Japan. My father was a chemist, and I attended uh, a Jesuit-trained uh, military academy called St. Mary's Military Academy, and uh, um, then, uh, you know, got into... Um, uh, American culture and experienced the summer of love, uh, 1967, um, <laughs> and uh, somehow ended up with an interest in uh, Jesus and the Gospels. Uh, wrote Caesar's Messiah about, and uh, the first edition came out about 15 years ago, and then since then it's uh, just been, um, you know, one of the focuses that I've uh, had almost every day. Mm, okay, um, so that's pretty been your pretty much your primary focus of study is uh, the Gospels and how they relate to um, uh, material that was put out uh, during the Roman Empire. Is that correct? Like you, you right. doing like comparative yeah, study? Yeah. Caesar's Messiah gives a new sort of interpretive framework for the Gospels, which is that the literature in the Gospels, the story of Jesus Christ, is typology. And typology is a fancy word, but it just means that one story is using another story as the basis for the narrative. So that even though uh, the story of Jesus Christ looks like a history, it looks like perhaps a religious history, in fact, it is actually written um, about another individual. Uh, this, this is the individual who fulfilled all of the prophecies that Jesus Christ made. And he was a Roman Caesar named Titus Flavius. Um, he is the individual who um, crushed the Galilean towns that Jesus predicted. He encircled the city of Jerusalem as Jesus predicted, and he raised the temple as Jesus predicted. And so um, 
the character Jesus is uh, was created by the um, uh, by the Flavians, the family that this Caesar emerged from, and uh, it had two purposes. The the story of Jesus. Uh, the first was just to create a alternative to the Messianic Judaism that this family fought against, and one of the things that keeps people from understanding the uh, reality of the Gospels, what, what is really being said, is that they don't understand um, the history of the era particularly well, which was one of warfare. Uh, from the year 1 to about the year 135, Judea was in a conflict with the Roman Empire. And what was leading the uh, the Jews at this time was a messianic movement, a movement that saw a Christ or Messiah coming to help them militarily. And this was a, a very logical and uh, uh, sort of predictable aspect because if you look at the uh, the Jewish historical scripture, they would always have, whenever things got really bad, uh, a Messiah would come forward, like the original one, David. So that when, you know, the Philistines were about to overrun them, then uh, and Goliath was on the battlefield, then David would show up with the power of God, and then things would work out great for the Israelites. So this was <clears throat> what their perspective was, and this was the energy that they brought against the Roman Empire. And the rebellion started at the year 1, uh, 1 CE or 1 AD, and they lasted all the way up to 135. Um, the fury of these rebellions just can't be underestimated. Um, the Messianic movement took control of the island of Cyprus in about the year 115. Uh, they gained military control over the island, and they genocided the entire Gentile population of 240,000. So this is the kind of ferocity that you're talking about, and this was why... Uh, following the war, even though the Flavians had defeated the Messianic movement at that particular time, they knew it was going to prop up again. And so they tried to head it off with um, a, a new version of the religion, one that would have a, a peaceful, turn-the-other-cheek, uh, give-to-Caesar-what-is-Caesar type Messiah. Um, so this was the political purpose for the Gospels and for Christianity in general. But in addition to that, the, the, the Caesars were um, engaged in a vainglorious culture uh, that was spearheaded by something called the imperial cult. And this is just basically making you yourself into a god. Uh, all of, or very many of the, the Caesars essentially would set up a religious bureaucracy and then they would be worshipped as a god. Um, and so... Uh, the, uh, when they wrote the Gospels, they put a character into it that we know of as the Son of Man. Jesus is always mm -hmm. predicting that when the Son of Man comes, this is going to happen and that's going to happen, all these apocalyptic events. And the identity of the Son of Man is not clear because it certainly isn't Jesus Christ. He didn't show up when the war between the Romans and the Jews took place, which was 40 years into his future, as the uh, character is, is described in his timeline. So it wasn't this character, but then who was it? Who was the Son of Man Jesus was predicting? Well, um, that's why they created this typologic system, which is just a lot of events that are parallel between Jesus and Titus, um, and put the character into Jesus' mouth. He predicts his coming. And so <clears throat> even though it may seem complicated on his face, it's actually 
really the only way that you can understand the Gospels logically, is that uh, the Son of Man did come, and he came just when Jesus said he would come, and he did exactly what Jesus predicted he would do. And he was this individual, Titus Flavius, and Titus Flavius, through his court historians, maintained that he was the Christ, that he was the individual that was foreseen by all these prophecies that Jesus Christ claimed for himself. So um, it's really a sad but uh, frankly pretty obvious situation that Christianity was a Roman invention. Uh, it was the idea being to tame the uh, Messianic movement that was rebelling against Rome, and the Son of Man that uh, Jesus predicted, in fact, came and did what he said uh, Jesus predicted he would do, and his identity was Titus Flavius, the Roman Caesar. Yeah, that's uh, that's really uh, interesting. Um, Joe, could you give like a basic, just real quick, um, in your definition, what typology is? Like, a, just for someone listening, Chris and I understand what typology yeah. is, but if someone's listening for the first time, that way they sure. can just get. Okay, it's it's there's all sorts of it in Hebraic literature, and basically, it's just linking two characters together. So I'll give an example. The, the real simple one in, uh, in the Gospels relates backward to Moses, and it's the uh, story of Jesus' pre-ministry. It's told in Matthew. And in that story, uh, Je- Joseph goes to Egypt. You know, he has a dream, and then Joseph goes to Egypt. Herod massacres the boys. You have a sentence uh, that they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And then you return. Then the family of Jesus returns from Egypt to Israel, there's the baptism where Jesus, you know, is baptized. He passes through water. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and then you have the three temptations, the tempted by bread, uh, don't tempt God, and then worship only God. Okay, so that's just this, these are little tidbits that are, um, uh, you know, part of the pre-ministry that Matthew gives. Well, all of that comes from the Old Testament. And you can see it when you lay the, the parallels next to each other and they occur in the same sequence. Because in the Old Testament, remember the story of Joseph going to Egypt. Um, Pharaoh massacres the boys. Um, the statement uh, that, that occurs in Matthew is given in the Old Testament. All the men are dead who sought their life. And then the nation of, uh, of Israel, the Israelites, travel from Egypt back to Israel. They pass through water. They have the baptism, you know, passing through the Red Sea. Now, they go into the wilderness like Jesus does. He goes for 40 days. They go for 40 years. You see, typology is never precise. That would be verbatimism. In fact, it's it's just has enough similarity to be coherent. But the three sentences that um, uh, Jesus gives, uh, tempted by bread, don't tempt God, worship only God, for the three different experiences he had with Satan, those are all verbatim. They're all taken right out of the Old Testament. So... What this is, is the character of, G- of Jesus in the pre-ministry is typologically. In other words, there was a type, like a, the word stereotype, or um, a, a parallel to his experience that it was based upon. So when, when the character of Jesus' father, Joseph, goes to Egypt, and he has a dream that tells him he has to take off, this is just based upon and is typological. In other words, it, it is a typological connection to the story in the Old Testament where Joseph has his dreams and then he decides he has to go to Egypt. So that's typology. Typology just is a, a parallelism between two stories. And 
it can have different meanings. I mean, um, um, if, uh, you know, if someone uh, um, bases, uh, um, you know, like a Charlie Chaplin used uh, Adolf Hitler for his character, uh, I forget which one, the the, uh, the emperor, I think it was. He had a story and he dressed up like Hitler, the, right? The dictator. Okay, that's right, yeah. And, and so he was using Hitler as a type, and there was a typologic relationship between Hitler and the, and the individual that Chaplin was portraying. In the Gospels, in the story I just told you, this is basically having Jesus rework the story of Moses. And this shows that the, the, the typological point is, is that Jesus was, is divinely created and inspired, and there is a pattern to his life that is divine. And this is a, this is a literary technique, which is obviously fictional, right? It cannot ever be history. It always has to be uh, fictional, um, but it always has a point, and the point is just to unify, to create a kind of uh, uh, connection between one character in a story and a character in a prior story. So the, the real important takeaway is that the story that uh, people know about Jesus's pre-ministry is demonstrably fictional, right? This cannot have ever occurred. It's not a historical event. It's all taken right out of the Old Testament. So they made the character up using the Old Testament as, as a type or as a typologic basis for the new character, Jesus Christ. In the, um, in the, in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, there's, um, I read this book about that. Um, I, when I, I used to go to church, the, the idea that we were taught, um, fall, fell in line with what I think most, most people would refer to as, uh, a preterist view. Preterite, uh, yeah, the, right. The preterites were, um, uh, they, what they do is they look at the Gospels and they say, you know, Jesus was describing the events of the war. He was predicting the war. And that's mm -hmm. obvious um, because he was describing events from the war. Because yeah, he and says... So um, natural thing, natural way to look at it. Yeah, it, it, it fits together and makes a lot of sense when you look at it that way. If you're not, because a lot of, uh, modern, you know, evangelical Christians, especially and stuff, they, they've taken on the, the premillennial, uh, the premillennialist, um, future tense looking for those prophecies to be filled in the future. So, right. um, and they interpret the, when Jesus says, or when Jesus is asked, like, what, what are, what are the signs of your coming and what, uh, uh, and, you know, that will let us know what is, what is the coming of the end of the age. But the end of the age, um, if from the preterist view is the, the end of the, uh, the Jewish age, the Jewish age of their rule. And right. they were looking towards that. And then, you know, and when you interpret the scripture that way, it says, you know, some, some will say, you know, flee to the hills or flee, um, uh, uh, where, where they're told, you know, to, to leave, get out of the wall, get out of the walled city and go to the hills is what they were told to do, which doesn't make any sense if you're, if you're talking about the, the utter destruction of the earth. It's like right. the hills aren't going to help you, you know. Right. But, well, I mean, the, the, um, you know, the, the real problem is this, this uh, character, Jesus predicts the Son of Man, because Jesus is obviously predicting the coming war. And I'm going to give you a real uh, easy way to prove that in a second. But So he's predicting the events from the coming war, but that means that Jesus' second coming has already occurred, 
right? That he he had to have come back right. during the destruction of the uh, of the temple, but the fact is he didn't come back. So the religion has a huge problem because either the Son of Man is someone other than Jesus Christ, or Jesus failed to live up to his prophecies. Neither one of those are uh, ideas that devout Christians are able to live with. They simply make the religion false. And so uh, they have found various machinations to try to avoid it, usually just with really weird and incomprehensible translations like the one that you gave. But they are really and totally off base. And let me just show you a real simple way to prove this. So Jesus' ministry went from, you know, 70 to 73 A.D., um, and he was the human Passover lamb. Right, he was he was executed according to the Gospels, and they give a little system of how you can tell when the dates are. I won't go into it because it's kind of, kind of long, but so anyway, he's 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 executed at, at Passover thirty three, and he's the Passover Lamb. He's a human Passover Lamb. They go way out of their way to make sure everyone knows that Jesus is a human Passover Lamb. Again, I won't go into this, but I mean, every, everyone I presume who's familiar with Christianity understands it. So now, the the original Passover Lamb. Uh, was part of a 40-year cycle, okay? He, uh, you know, Moses had to go wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years before the Israelites could go into the promised land. And the 40 years is deliberate because 40 years is a classic period of penance, uh, purification in the, um, uh, in the Old Testament, and it represents a generation. The age of a, of a generation is 40 years. Now, Jesus's the Passover lamb was executed on Passover 33. So guess what day the war between the Romans and the Jews ended? Passover 33. Passover 73. 40 years to the oh, day. 40 years later, right? Right. See, so it's obvious you can't do that uh, accidentally. That's that shows that um, the whole thing was written after the war, and that uh, the prophecies that Jesus makes as the human Passover lamb are just as exactly the same as the events of the original Passover lamb, that the age is going to come to an end in 40 years, and this will be the end of the um, uh, the Jewish uh, domination, uh, dominion over Israel. And um, on that day, the Romans then took possession of Judea. You can see how neatly organized the, the uh, Christian literature is when you start really understanding it. The... Uh, the age ended on Passover 73. The Romans then uh, owned the uh, the region of, of Judea, and they became the Messiah. So it's uh, it is uh, it's again it's impossible to write this literature in in in, in a prophetic way. It, it's it's artificial. It's, you rewrite it after the fact, but you have to recognize that Jesus is a human Passover lamb. And look at the day 40 years into the future to see if anything significant happened. And once you do, you can see, wait a second. Um, what the Gospels are really saying is that the Romans are replacing the Israelites inside of the, um, this connection to God. And that's why the, um, they're called the New Testament, but that's a mistranslation. It really is the New Covenant. And they're referring to the covenant that Moses had with God, which had the 40-year cycle after the human Passover lamb. So in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, it uh, it begins on uh, Passover 73, 
and you now have uh, a new age because now the Romans control uh, Israel, control Judea. And what do you what do you think about the typologies that are in the Old Testament with um, like uh, Joseph and Jonah and yeah. uh, Joshua? That you know that it's it's said that they were typologies of Christ because you know like Jonah was was in the belly of the whale three days and he he went through sort of a uh, a type of a resurrection and then he went preaching and then there's the about Joseph where he was thrown down into a well so it was, it was like a typology yeah. of Jesus being yeah. um, you know going going into the tomb and resurrecting and. Uh, and then you know the uh, story of Isaac and and uh, Abraham and and uh, Isaac, where he takes yeah. them as a sacrifice and as a sacrificial right. lamb, and then right, and they use um, some of the language. God, and God, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I got it. Well, the thing is, um, there's two possibilities. I mean, one is you're looking at the hand of God, you know, manifested. The the, the literature is actually recording these parallelism. The other is that the technique of typology is used in the Gospels to give it um, a kind of Jewish veneer that would make the storyline um, uh, believable and understandable to the Jews that they wanted to convert. Uh, mm -hmm. Frankly, once you start getting into the fact that the story is fictional, it, the whole thing falls apart. You can mm -hmm. see that the typologies are all fake. They are there. They're deliberate. But they were done for the same purpose as the little example I gave you at the beginning, the uh, pre-ministry pre in Matthew, where they're trying to link back to Moses. They've got all sorts of typologies with uh, Elijah and Elijah and uh, and the story of Jonah. They use they use these um, the stories from the Old Testament to base the story uh, of Jesus Christ on, just to continue this pattern of fusing the character into the Old Testament. What they really want people to do is to um, experience the Old Testament and then go on to the New Covenant mm -hmm. and have the understanding that, well, gee, it looks like all of these prophecies foresaw Jesus Christ. Uh, it looks like um, he is has led us to the Romans, so this is the new manifestation of God on the planet. The covenant with Moses is broken, and the New Covenant is with the family of Caesar. That's really about the whole storyline. It's just a psychological, uh, you know, propaganda device to make people easier to control. Yeah, there's like the prophecy in Psalms, too, where it says, you know, they, they pierced my hands and my feet, right, and it's, right. it's very descriptive of, like, a crucifixion. So yeah. are, are, you, are you suggesting, then, that maybe they, um, that that was, you know, the, a Jewish text, right, the Old Testament? It, yeah. that's That's not from the... From the Romans, right? No, no, you know. no. They had, uh, if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had all sorts of uh, these, these, uh, you know, the Old Testament stories were in circulation, mm -hmm. and uh, they were what was propelling the Jews to rebel. The, the Roman had, the Romans had a court historian, uh, a mm -hmm. traitor, a turncoat. They adopted him, uh, Flavius Josephus. He he had been a Jewish rebel, if you believe his story, and he was adopted. He was adopted by the uh, by the Flavians and became kind of their a Jewish court historian, and he wrote a history which states that what really um, was propelling the Jews to rebel was their literature and their belief in the coming of a Messiah. So this was a, a, a problem for the Flavian family. 
all of these stories had had uh, Jewish messianic heroes leading the Jews to victory against foreign invaders, and so they couldn't uh, conquer them very easily because they have that as a fixed idea about the future and about how to how to fight battles. So the um, uh, you know the the purpose of the of the gospels they created was just to try to get into the heads of the Jews and get this idea of the um, violent, xenophobic, nationalistic Messiah out of there and put into place a pro-Roman, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile kind of Messiah. Joe, when you analyze something, how do you come up with the idea that it's typologically written? Well... Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the gospels are basically written as sort of an intellectual puzzle, uh, again, something people haven't seen, but is in fact the case. Um, I, I was interested in the gospels because I had been reading the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, I had been raised a Catholic. I went to this, um, uh, you know, St. Mary's Military Academy in Tokyo. I'd fallen away from the faith. I wasn't a practicing Christian, but I was still quite curious about Jesus. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and they described a violent Messiah, I was amazed at this. I had never been taught this in school, and I started studying uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this led me to, you know, question the whole historicity of Jesus. And so I was curious about the age, and I read the only um, history that is available from the era, and that's uh, Flavius Josephus, The Wars of the Jews. That's all we have. We don't really have anything else. We have this one book. And uh, so I read that, and while I was reading it, and I have no particular way to explain it, but I just saw weird connections and stories between what Josephus was writing and the stories in the Gospels. And so I started trying to make sense of this, and then one day, it just occurred to me, something very um, uh, sort of profound in terms of my ability to understand, and that is that the sequences were occur the excuse me, the parallels were occurring in the same sequence, just as the little example I gave you where both stories are, are arranged in the same sequence. The parallels between Jesus and Titus Flavius that, that I saw were occurring in the same sequence. And so then when I laid the, uh, the two documents side by side, I could see suddenly instead of seeing, you know, five or six stories, I could see 40 or 50. I could see, wait a second, the whole thing, the whole ministry of Jesus, the whole story of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels has been woven into this typological connection. Some of the stories are kind of cryptic. They're sort of hard to see the connections. And then others are just no-brainers. Once you've got the fact that they are in sequence, then um, then you can um, easily spot them. And I'll give you an example. Like, once I realized they were in sequence, I was trying to find the crucifixion story because I knew there had to be some parallel to something so important. And um, I couldn't find it anywhere, but noted that in Josephus's at the beginning of Wars of the Jews, he has a little story about his life, his autobiography. It's only about 20 pages. But at a certain point in the story, he gives you these two events that occurred that enable you to, to place it in the sequence of events inside the Jewish war, and therefore you can now put it inside the parallels of you know that go back to the Gospels. 
And inside that little area, which is only a few hundred words of text, there was a story of um, of a guy named Joseph Bar Matthias. It's it's actually the Josephus is the author, begging the Roman commander to take someone down from a cross who's in a group of three, and the guy miraculously survives. So the way I was able to find the 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 crucifixion parallel is because I knew where to look. And this had never really been noticed before, even though now the the relationship between Joseph of Arimathea and uh, Joseph Barmathias, the, the two words are almost exactly the same. They're just two Greek letters that are different. Um, no one had ever seen it before. Um, I would never have spotted it, but I knew exactly where to look. So, so typology is a system. It's an intellectual system that once you start to to get the framework down, um, you know, you can you can actually um, make progress and understand it. It's, like I said, it, they the Romans wanted to hide this relationship to the Son of Man. I mean, it's this is the hard part to understand. They wanted they didn't want the common person to know this. But these guys are the most vain humans who ever lived. They wanted legacy. They really wanted immortal legacy. And so that's why they put the little puzzle about the Son of Man in there, this typologic uh, connection that you have to kind of uh, piece together to understand. Because they wanted people to know what they'd done. They wanted to, them people to know that they had been able to uh, make themselves the god of Christianity, which is really the sad fact, is that even though we think we've been, you know, worshiping this um, peace-loving, you know, kind of miracle-working guy, Jesus Christ, the fact is Christians have really been worshiping the Son of Man, and that's the real... What about uh, the... Um... Oh, Joe, sorry to interrupt. No, I, no, that, that, that's who they've wanted... been worshiping, is, is Caesar, not Jesus. The, if you go into... Um... <clears throat> well, I mean, the idea, like, you, you're, you, you seem to be proposing, like, the idea that... Um... The Jews were looking for a militaristic Messiah-type leader, and that was yeah. kind of, you know, um, and the whole idea of Jesus being, um, you know, a messenger of peace and all that is like entirely novel, and with and it didn't come about to the introduction of the, of the, um, you know, the contrived gospels that were issued yeah, I mean, out by the, the character Jesus, Jesus Christ right? is ludicrous. A, 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 a kind of a pro-Roman uh, Messiah, yeah. son of David. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous on its face. I mean, just look are, at the, the stories in the Old Testament. Look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you want to see what the real Messiah is like, he's a xenophobic uh, warrior who is uh, killing, um, you know, uh, the Gentiles because they, he has the power of God to create Israel. Israel is a religious state. It isn't something that uh, could ever be you know, shared with another race or, or religion. And so the whole idea of Jesus Christ is just preposterous, or at least it isn't preposterous, but it's just far-fetched. You know what I mean? It's just very far-fetched. would never happen. What, what do you make of, what do you make of passages like Isaiah, Isaiah, you know, 52, the whole, is it Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled. Uh, and be very high, just as many were astonished by you. So his vicious, his visage was marred more than man, and his form more than the sons of man. And he said, "He'll sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what has not been told them they shall see, and what they have what they have not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. Comeliness." 
And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire of him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with, with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Yeah, I mean, the, I um, mean that, the... that's not descriptive of a militaristic-type messiah. That's, that's, that, uh, that yeah, coincides that's right. with... And, and... I mean that that's right and that's more um of uh you know kind of oh um the um uh, a religious person who has been um uh, through really hard times and obviously the israelites had these terrible experiences i mean they're always falling out of favor with god they're always being sometimes persecuted by god and punished i mean remember you know moses couldn't even go into the holy land uh, you know for a very small transgression so I think that passage is more uh, reflective of kind of a neurosis that was inside uh, the Hebraic religion early on, that the relationship with God was um, uh, tumultuous and uh, violent. Um, but as far as it being, uh, I mean, like, how does how does that character, and I think it was used as the basis for um, um, the... Uh, you know the character of Jesus Christ. They saw that there were opportunities in the he in the Hebrew Bible to be able to develop their character. Um, but the uh, historical fact is that uh, the what was really propelling the Jews to rebel weren't those kinds of passages. See, the the Hebrew Bible has just all sorts of different perspectives in it, and you can pick and choose and find whatever you want. But the historical fact is is that the Messianic movement was able to defeat the Romans militarily in uh, in 66. Uh, and so this just shows that it was the national movement, right? They, they You couldn't drive the Roman army out with just a handful of rabble. You know, this was a huge undertaking by the uh, religious Jews of the era in 66. And, uh, and so when Josephus wrote that, that what most propelled them was their scripture, I mean, he's not talking about that passage. I mean, I'll, I'll cite you, you know, if you want, I'll cite you a dozen passages where you can see the, uh, the military aspect of the Jewish religion and the uh, martial aspect of the Messiah. And so that's what they were, uh, they were getting involved with was those passages and not ones that could be, I mean, you know, you can cite uh, the, the uh, Ten Commandments and do not kill as a, as a principle, but it just wasn't in motion. I mean, remember, when, when nations are colonized, particularly religious nations like um, Israel, uh, the reaction is, isn't looking so much for um, peaceful solutions. I mean, the reaction is looking in the Scripture for stuff that worked in the past. I mean, look at... Uh, David's situation with Goliath, and I think you'll see what they were really looking for in terms of a Messiah. Remember, he cut his head off. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So that that's yeah, that the, doesn't, but that doesn't supersede the the passages in the Old Testament that are that. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't, I, I, I don't. Super, it's not supposed to supersede them. It's just the um, the as I said. Yeah, those are there. Pick, you can pick and choose with, uh, any passage you want to give perspective, but on balance, you can see why. If you look, if you're familiar with it, you can see why the um, uh, 
the Messiah was a was something that would propel them to rebel. Why why they would look mm-hmm. to the Messiah to be something like David, not the suffering servant. Right there, so that's really what was moving the uh, rebellion, mm-hmm. and this is what the Romans were yeah. focused on. They weren't fo- the Romans didn't care about those kinds of passages. They they thought those were great. The more the better. What they were looking at was the passages that were being assembled into a uh, a literature of warriors. And so that's why they wrote the Gospels is to basically is to try to take those prophecies as best they could and show that, look, there's another way of having, you know, uh, um, your religion operate. And this, you know, the 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 Romans had all sorts of ways. The, the Gospels are just one of them, but they had all sorts of ways that they had been in, had put in place to try to control the Jews religion it goes back to Julius Caesar. Um, so the fact that. Uh, you know, they came up with Jesus Christ was almost just, you know, automatic. I mean, they, they were, they were looking, constantly looking for some way to get the Messiah basically inside the Roman camp. Uh, the Herods, their tax collecting family that ruled Judea, tried to breed themselves into the Messianic lineage. They would take Maccabean brides and the Maccabees were the Messianic family of the era. So they would take Maccabean brides, they would have a child, they would take the child, train him in Rome, and bring him back and present him to the people as a legitimate, you know, line of David ruler, Messiah type, mm-hmm. but the people wouldn't buy it, right? The religion mm-hmm. was being energized by other elements at that time, and, and that's really, you know, looking at those things is how you get a coherent um, understanding of the gospel and one that'll fit it right into the history of the era. Joe, uh, your two recent articles um, about uh, the Beatles, uh, I Am the Walrus, and uh, On the Catcher and the Rye, would you like to talk about that right now? Is that okay? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, I got asked by someone to um, give my impression of uh, I Am the Walrus, which is a bizarre Beatles song, and uh, and so I looked at it, and it wasn't too hard to see that there was actually a theme, um, even though John Lennon had uh, taken the case or taken the position that there wasn't really any sort of theme to what he was writing. And the fact is, is that um, the, um, the 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 story in in the um, in the song uh, is based on the poem by Lewis Carrick by Lewis Carroll. The guy who wrote Alice in Wonderland called the Walrus and the Carpenter, and I read Lennon's statement that he had written his song just to be gibberish. Right? There was no reason for it other than to throw people off looking for symbolism in Beatles songs, and it's just gibberish. And they also said, though, that it was based on the poem by by Lewis Carroll, which I was familiar with, and I thought that was odd because. Um, the song, the, excuse me, the poem by Lewis Carroll is an apocalyptic vision. That poem describes two individuals, a walrus and carpenter, who fool a young generation of oysters. They get them away from their parents, and then they kill them and eat them. And at which point, the walrus and the carpenter start crying, and uh, because there's nothing left to, to kill and eat. Now, Carol's um, poem has apocalyptic references to the book of Revelation. He uh, are, are to the apocalypse in the Old Testament. 
He he has some Daniel numbers uh, forty two. He talks about sweeping away all this sand. Uh, if seven maids with seven mops swept for seven years, I'm doing this from memory, so you know, don't don't if I miss a word or two, um, you know, would they sweep it all away? Wouldn't it be grand to get rid of them? And I, you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the sand is a representation of the generation of a, of a people, and that the seven years uh, is a number that the prophet Daniel uses uh, in between these apocalyptic events. And so, it, particularly since all of this generation gets wiped out. It, it looks like um, Carol's making a little um, kind of tongue-in-cheek reference to the to the Book of Revelation or to the apocalypse that uh, that Jesus described. And so I thought, well, that's odd. Now, why is Carol doing that? And I, then I looked at the um, at the 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 song, and uh, I saw that in the very next line that um, um, Lenin then talks about. Um, uh, he uses uh, a a refrain from a song that um, came from the Boer War, and uh, that is "You, I am you, are you, and you are me, as we are all together." Um, now, the Boer War that song was sung by a group that was trying to get away from the British Freemason army. Um, and fled from Cape Town to Pretoria, and that's where the song comes up, and Lennon paraphrases it. But the very next line is what really kind of got me into um, to seeing what Lennon was really talking about, is that he said, see how they run like pigs from a gun, see how they fly. Um, and uh, in Carol's poem, he's, there's a, a concept of the flying pig. You, know, you have the question, uh, we, it's time to come to talk of sealing wax and boiling seas and whether pigs can fly. Now, sealing wax is, you know, is relating to the seals, the seven seals of Revelation, and the boiling sea is the event from Revelation 6. And whether pigs have wings, uh, well, gee, I, this is, you know, cryptic. But uh, in any case, uh, Lenin's line where he says, um, you know, see how they run like pigs from a gun, I thought, well, wait a second, this is a pun on the word boar, right? Because it, this line relates back to the line immediately that preceded it. This is not a far-fetched method of an analyzing songs, is that this, the line that follows something is relating to the line above it. So, see how they run like pigs from a gun. What Lenin is actually referring to here is see how they run like boars from a gun. This is relating to... Um, the first line, the uh, the song "Marching to Pretoria," "I am you, you are me, and we are all together." That is the Boers running from the guns of the British Freemason army. So now, when you go through Lenin's uh, charming uh, song, you can pick up all sorts of um, images to the apocalypse and um, uh, the. Um, uh, it, it suddenly becomes very clear that when you go through it, and I would just recommend people go, because the analysis is fairly long, there's a lot of different events, but you go to the thing and you can see, wait a second, Lenin is actually making an homage to an apocalypse, right? He's actually saying it's a good idea. And when Lenin has the refrain, I'm crying, which he goes throughout his, his little song, 
He's using it in the same way that Carol did. Again, this isn't far-fetched because, frankly, that's how you're supposed to use stuff from someone else's song when you're borrowing it. It's typically in the same context, which means Lenin is saying he's sorry because there isn't any more boars to kill. We've slaughtered them all. It's sad. There isn't enough uh, more people to kill and eat. So the song I Am the Walrus, um, you know, when you start breaking it down, becomes just this homage to Apocalypse. Um, he has another refrain, goo goo gaju, goo goo gaju, goo goo gaju. He's, he, you know, when at the end of the song, he's singing with a very martial and kind of a militaristic tone to his voice. Well, that's a, a phrase from uh, James Joyce, who's also on the cover of uh, Sgt. Pepper, that describes the apocalypse. The, the, the paragraph starts out with the description of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. J Joyce actually has the phrase in there. So then he has goo 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 which is like a kind of a martial description of a victory. Um, so... You know, when you start breaking it down, you get to see, you get to understand why there are so many Freemasons on the cover of Sergeant Pepper's. And I mean, it's just beyond belief. There's like over half of the people are known Freemasons, and many of the others are kind of uh, suspected of being in this organization. So it seems to me that um, there is a connection to Freemasonry that is uh, in a kind of Freemasonry that isn't really public knowledge that is going on in Sergeant Pepper's. So, um, uh, that would be I Am the Walrus, and I'm not going to, because I want to go on just to briefly talk about the Catcher in the Rye, so I'm not going to, um, uh, you know, go further. But those who want to see the analysis, um, I think it's fairly convincing, and it's available at postflaviana.org, a website that I uh, maintain that I post these kinds of analysis. And anyway, so Catcher in the Rye, uh, once again. Wait, uh, Joe, can, yeah, I, go can I ask a question before, before course, you go to Catcher in the Rye? Go fast, yeah. Oh, it's okay. Um, Okay, like your analysis of uh, Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. Um, how, uh, once you, I mean, obviously you're going to get into it right now, but, mm -hmm. um, I will, you know, I already listened to your talk with Jan and I read your article. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, like, I, under, I understand a lot about how the Freemasonic, uh, ritual works, you know, the, the, the induction ritual. Good. Good, good. Yeah, and and so over the years of studying, uh, you know, just Freemasonic stuff, I pretty much see the overlay just in society and culture in general. Like we go through a lot of things in culture that we don't even know are Freemasonic. Right. And and so it, that that particular article made a lot of sense to me. Um, that uh, you could write a book with a hidden Freemasonic meaning in it, and, you know, nobody would know that, and except, you know, maybe somebody who was into Freemasonry. And it's interesting because, I, you know, I've read Catcher in the Rye like about three times in my life. And the first time the first time I read it, I it didn't make a lot of sense. The, se the second time I read it, it made me sad. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the third time I read it, which I think you'll find funny, is because... I read John Marx's book, and then I wanted to see if there was any uh, MK Ultra triggers in it. Wow, amazing! <laughs> so, uh, but um, but then you know, I, I I liked your analysis of it. Now, what would be the difference between like what you're saying um, 
typologically speaking, and and saying that Catcher in the Rye is a Masonic allegory, since they love allegory in Freemasonry. Right. Um, oh, gee, it's hard to say. I, and I'm not um, probably familiar enough with uh, Freemason allegory to have a really informed um, position on that. It's a great question. I... I read the book at the request of someone. I just get asked um, by people who are curious about things. And in this instance, it was because of the potential relationship to assassins. Someone was curious about this. They had they actually were aware of my walrus analysis and the Freemason connection. And they wondered, and they'd also read another article I'd written about um, the creation of the counterculture in MKUltra. I know if you ever saw that. I wrote it with Jan Irwin. Uh, it's called Manufacturing the Deadhead, where we try to yeah. show the connection between the, the counterculture and uh, this organization, MKUltra, and how the government may have attempted to uh, create a kind of debased, you know, easy-to-control population. And, and so, MKUltra nationwide. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so and so this was what uh, this person had asked me about was, were is there something in Catcher in the Rye? that's related to the article I wrote about manufacturing the, the deadhead or maybe even John Lennon's material, you know, or is there something in there? And I actually couldn't remember reading Catcher in the Rye, so I got a copy and read it and came to this one line where I just stopped dead in my tracks where, where Holden Caulfield says, and they had this, you know, damn secret fraternity that I was too yellow not to join. Okay, so so he was a member of a secret fraternity. And um, and I asked myself, well, what is the secret fraternity? So then I went back to the first page of the book and started reading, trying to see if I could figure out what the secret fraternity was, because um, I thought that this statement uh, that there was a secret fraternity simply demanded some kind of explanation, and you know, looking for stuff. And I thought maybe it was related to MK Ultra, or maybe it's some kind of a trigger. I don't know. What is the secret fraternity? I looked in the literature, no one had written anything about it, so I went back and I noticed that he studied the Egyptians for 28 days. Now, I have no basis whatsoever in Freemasonry. I, I just go, well, that's interesting. He's studying the Egyptian and he fails. So I started to try to make sense of this, and for no particular reason, I started looking into Freemason activity to see what was related to it, and I found that there was 28 days a period before between the initiation and when the first exam was taken, and I thought, man, that's pretty suspicious. Maybe that maybe the secret fraternity is Freemasonry. So then I went down um, a few pages and found um, this uh, a, a passage which talks about where he's sleeping in Eli's bed. And because I'm very familiar with cryptic writing, I mean, I basically just do this day and night. I can kind of sense when cryptic writing is occurring, and one of the keys is they repeat the concept over and over again. This happens in the Gospels, um, happens in Shakespeare, and, and it certainly is happening here, because Salinger says, he says, I told him I was only kidding, I went over and I laid down on Eli's bed, and then the guy says, what are you going to do, sleep on Eli's bed, and then, then the next thing he says, I kept laying there on Eli's bed. He, kept, he repeats the concept, Eli's bed, three times. 
again, I have no idea what is going on in terms of Freemasonry, but I know that Eli's bed has been repeated too many times, and there's probably a connection. And since I'm looking for a secret fraternity and I've got the 28 days of study period to, before you get the test on the Egyptians, I'm going, Eli's bed, what the heck is this? And so then I looked and said, I found that uh, in the Freemason manual, quoting, uh, in the introduction to the prophetical office, the following, the following passage is read, you know, and the child administered to the Lord before Eli, and it came time to pass that Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim, um, you know, and then, so then it describes him one more time, lie down again, and I am not, and so anyway, so I said, wait a second, so this is Eli's bed, this is the office of, the introduction to the prophetical office, and it's just, so what, at this point, I could see that, that so that what he's really doing is then he's, he's making, uh, Caulfield has failed in his first attempt to become a Freemason. And so now he's going through the process and he's going to actually go through the, these levels and then, and then succeed. And so then I started to look at the book from that light and then it suddenly made sense. Um, the only problem is the kind of Freemasonry he's describing is really violent. Um, you know, there's a line where where uh, Caulfield has a hat on, and uh, you know his friend says that, "Hey, that's a that's a hat we wear where I live. That's a deer shooting hat." And Caulfield says, "No way," and he closes one eye, right, one eye, and he goes, "This is a people shooting hat. I shoot people in this hat, right?" So notice the one eye and the people shooting hat. So if Salinger is operating in a Freemason context, he's describing a really you know, violent one. Um, I had already, um, uh, you know, was familiar with some of the violent symbolism regarding Freemasonry that other uh, writers had um, had put in place. Um, and I had read uh, Tom Sawyer shortly before this, and I remember the ending, uh, and I have it here in front of me, just read it to you, where, where uh, they're sitting there and, uh, I think it's Huck and Tom, they're chatting, and he goes, when are we going to start the gang and turn robbers? Oh, right off. We'll get the boys together and have the initiation tonight. Have the witch, have the initiation. What's that? It is to swear, to stand by one another and never tell the gang's secret, even if you're chopped all to flinders, and kill anybody and all his family that hurts one of the gang. So, I mean, um, uh, Twain is a famous Freemason, and and that that's, I, that's like uh, chopping up Osiris. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I thought, well, you know something that this looks like um, there is a level where you have these secrets that are pretty grim. That once you get to them, the gang will give to you, and then then you become up in these higher levels. That's when you get the gang secret. Um, but you know, to kill everybody that hurts one of the gang. Uh, uh, it's just, it, this isn't the, you know, the, um, the, the Freemason Shriners with the children's hospitals. I mean, this is something very dangerous that seems to be going on. And, um, and then, uh, you know, getting back to Ketra Narai, um, uh, Salinger describes the, uh, you know, I won't use the obscenity, but he described, he, he says that the, at this one point, Caulfield goes into, uh, these two brothers. Notice, the, you know, the Freemason you know, designation of brother. The two brothers take him into what is a, in my opinion, a representation of the Holy of Holies. He goes in there alone, holding Caulfield, and then he looks on the wall 
and he sees what is, in effect, the deep secret, which is just F-U, right? F-U. I mean, I won't use the obscenity, but he, you, everyone knows what I'm talking about. That's the deep secret. That is the perspective of, uh, of, of uh, Freemasons once they've risen to this right level. And, and so then Caulfield goes outside and he goes, you know, wherever you go, this is going to be. He's talking about a worldwide organization. Let me, let me just read the line. He goes, that's the whole trouble. You can't ever find a place that's nice and peaceful because there isn't any. You may think there is, but once you get there, when you're not looking, notice the secrets, and when you're not looking, someone will sneak up and write F-U right under your nose. And so this was the, um, um, you know, the, the deep secret of the Freemasons, and this is the, um, uh, you know, the overall meaning. It, it goes right back to, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, worldwide ability to do violence um i um i i would those if people who are interested i would hope they would just go to post flaviana and they can look at the complete analysis but um you know it's um it's a grim thing but it's uh it's there you know there it is So, yeah, it's some pretty wild stuff. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that um, the you can see something's wrong because just the fact that Eli's bad and the 28 days between the initiation and, uh, you know, and the secret fraternity, that no one has ever done any of this analysis. I mean, why not, for God's sakes? How many millions of poor students have been forced to wade through that uh, miserable piece of literature, and yet... No one has ever bothered to look at it in this light to try to link the events to identify the secret fraternity. And so once you see things like the 28 days and Eli's bed, and then they have another example where they have, they represent the, the death of Hiram Abith, you know, where the initiation is supposed to knocked over and he's blindfolded. And, you know, and so when you start seeing these things pop up in the book, it becomes pretty clear that there's, that there is a connection to Freemasonry, that it is a kind of Freemasonry that is dangerous, that's violent, that has these secrets, and that no one is talking about, right? And see, this is my, this was the thing I mentioned in the article, is that people talk about Catcher in the Rye like it's a signal, that it somehow is like an MK Ultra mind control device that gets the, uh, the, the uh, thought puppets to then go and do something violent. Well, I don't agree with that. I think it's just a warning. I think that at the high levels, people know exactly what the book means. And when they assassinate someone like Lenin, it's because he said something in public they didn't want him to say. And I suspect, uh, and then I, in, uh, in, in the article, I go into what Lenin said in his uh, Playboy interview uh, that was just before he was killed that I think uh, got him knocked off. Um, so this is, um, this is what free, this is how it's used. It's used as a, uh, um, you know, as a as a warning to people to to uh, keep their mouth shut, um, the oligarchs. You, you know what? You you had something. You were in the uh, talk. You were talking with Dion about something. Yeah. Um. And I had a I had a question about it. Yeah. Uh, if you wanted to kill somebody, what would you? Why would you need someone to be under mind control to do it? You wouldn't. What's that? You would not. 
if you're going to kill somebody, it's it's uh, in fact it suggests that they aren't under mind control. That's why you need to kill them. Yeah, I know. That's what, that's what all. That's what I mean. I don't ever question that there were MK Ultra tests on people, but it, it's always bothered me about the assassin stuff or like you know, like school like school shootings and things like that. That they're, you know, I, I think a lot of them are just straight out fakes. Yeah. But but at the same time, let's say somebody did actually, you know, assassinate somebody, you wouldn't, why wouldn't you just pay somebody instead of having to put them under the, you know, complicated effort of mind controlling them to do it? I agree. That's a good question. I mean, you know, you see movies that that represent this kind of psychological technique, um, like the born identity, you know, where they they create a human robot. Um, But that seems like an awful lot of work. And I actually think that's just a misdirection. I think that what really MKUltra was about was social control. I think it was about um, the ideas of uh, controlling culture in a broad sense. It wasn't really about, uh, you know, generating mind control puppet because, like you're saying, that there's no reason to do that. they got plenty of, of puppets that will just do what they say whenever they need. They don't need to go through the trouble of making one, you know, um, in this complicated way, so uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think. Oh, that... uh, you, you're right. You're right. On we, we talk about this all the time on on the afternoon commute. But uh, yeah, I told, I totally agree with you. You, you said exactly uh, things that me and Chris have said many times. Oh well, good. I mean, I just think it's obvious. And mm-hmm. what you have to look at is the uh, youth culture and the, the drug revolution and these broad scale destructive things in culture. That's what they're good at. That's what they can do. Right. That's what the media can do. There, I don't. I don't believe they're at the level yet of technology where they can make uh, mental puppets. I, I. I mean, they might be able to, and they're not. You know, they haven't told me about it, but they, they don't talk to me. But I. I would just think that's that's kind of far fetched. And uh, what I look at is just these destructive social pressures that uh, give the oligarchs an easier time to, uh, you know, keep their herd enslaved. You yeah, like one of the about, things about. Go, um, oh. go ahead, Chris. I, I was just going to say one of the. I was just going to say one of the things about. Um, well, I mean, psychoto- psychotropic drugs with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the psychotropic drugs that are out on the market, from what I understand, uh, closely resemble LSD in their exactly chemical yeah. makeup. So. Oh, I know it's horrible. Yeah, so they were. Yeah, so there. So it seems like to me like a lot of that MK Ultra had to do, and I and I think they did some horrible stuff. I I, I believe in the, uh, I believe they actually did the uh, was it you and you and Cameron sleep deprivation yeah. experimentation. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think they that. did do horrible things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, so they you know are you know t- of course they tested it out on the military uh, recruits and all that with LSD and the effects of LSD and they've been testing on it for a long time. And I think that was to develop this uh, compound that would make people, uh, among other things, highly suggest, uh, high, high degree of suggestibility. That's, that's, I mean, Jan Irving sure. brought that up. It's a, that's sure. what a lot of these uh, psych- psychotropic ty- uh, type drugs or even the, uh, the recreational drugs do as well. They I agree. I mean, I think make that you into a highly suggestible state. Yeah, they they want you to be highly suggestible. I think that was the general idea with the the music and the drugs. I mean, you know, the, this is kind of an old formula, the the shamanic 
formula of uh, music, dance, and drugs to get people to, you know, buy into the uh, dream narrative of the ruler so they would then basically be happy being slaves. So, uh, you know, we had the youth culture. We had, like, the Grateful Dead uh, with all the MK Ultra employees in the band and the Bohemian Grove uh, members in the band. I mean, it's just sickening when you get into the reality of these individuals and what they what they are in terms of their connections and who they work for. But this was done uh, to debase us, make us easier to rule, and it worked out well, in my opinion. Um, you know, we were debased. That The generation after World War II uh, would have been a problem for the oligarchs if they'd really been at full strength, so they just weakened them with the Vietnam War and uh, the youth culture. And, and so that kind of... Um, left us impotent, and uh, we really didn't affect any real social or political change. So the oligarchs you know, you know, Chris, got what they wanted. Chris, Chris has brought something up before. Maybe, maybe you might want to comment on it, maybe not. But um, Tim and I agree that we think that the, Viet, the purpose of the Vietnam War in its entirety was solely just to change the culture of America. Sure. I mean, it was uh, yeah. all of the war. The, the, the primary purpose of the wars is to reduce the populations that the oligarchs want uh, uh, to reduce the numbers in. Uh, World War One, World War Two. I mean, look at the uh, the firebombing of Dresden and Hamburg at the end of the war. I mean, that's just, it was preposterous. It was simply done to uh, reduce civilian population. Um, the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I mean, these things were, you know, had no military function whatsoever. It was, again, it, they were just... Um, wanting to weaken, weaken certain populations for certain reasons, and then they have a weak cover narrative as uh, trying to, you know, give the excuse for it. I mean, World War One, you can't even get historians to agree on the, on why it started, for heaven's sakes, you know, and yet it, um, it ended up with, you know, 25 million dead. So these the, the, are... The great thing about those, the great, or, and I say great in quotation, the great thing about war is no matter which side of the conflict you're on, uh, the culture is forever changed after the fact. So you get a lot. So it's like with World War One, you got to bring in the Jazz Age with you know the Prohibition, which you know didn't work. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. And and you got to bring in the mini skirt and the pre you know the premarital sex and that type of stuff. So you got a you got a culture change out of World War One, and um, yeah. every every war after that you got. Levels and levels of culture change, you know. Right. I mean, like after like after World War Two, you got the nuclear family, which no longer you no longer have an extended family, and then you you're only having three children as opposed to you know before people had six, seven, eight children. So you're lowering the population level right there. Well, look at what war does. It 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 war uh, when they go when they go into a a, a war like let's like say in Iraq. I mean. They systematically kill off um, a pretty high percentage of the male population, and then at the same time they're introducing West, the, these West, Westernized uh, or, or and also weaponized uh, cultural influences into the uh, their society um, through uh, you know the troops will 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 bring in you know their their music and their and their movies and stuff like that, and then. Um, 
I've seen different times where, like, you know, there'll be street vendors and stuff selling uh, the the west, you know, the the products of the westernized culture, the movies and the and the CD uh, CD, you know, the CDs and the music and all that. And um, I think that's a really important part. And now, you know, they're to the point where you know everybody's got a satellite dish on their roof and um, and all of that stuff. I think is very important to implement there and i think the reason why they do it in that um they do it in a specific region too because they've they've studied it and they know the best way to disseminate that uh those influences and that's how they they uh, undermine their their previous order is is i think primarily through the uh through the the cultural influences um, you know, and 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 you know, break, breaking apart families and stuff go a long way in facilitating that by taking you know high percentage of the male population out. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely right. I I mean the um, uh, World War II, a guy named Gregory Bateson basically ran what's called the OSS. He was an anthropologist. Uh, he developed something called black propaganda. Um, in um, articles I'll be posting in, in, a, in a few days and uh, the Post-Slaviana website, I'll point out that uh, he developed uh, the ability to destroy cultures, uh, you, you know, and through experimentation. He's actually talking about experiments that were being done in Russia on Siberian native that, populations. That's why, that's why he's married to Margaret Mead. Yeah, that's right. Basin was Mead's uh, husband at that time. Anyway, a little-known fact about Bateson is he's the father of the CIA. Uh, following um, World War II, uh, Wild Bill Donovan, who was a Wall Street banker, um, oddly enough head of the OSS, went to Truman to ask for a budget to continue it, and Truman said no, and he said, look, um, I want you to listen to what Bateson has to say. Bateson wrote, created an argument for the existence of the CIA, saying that because of the atomic weapon, it would be hard for the oligarchs to fight these kinds of wars much longer because they're going to blow up the planet, so they have to have a different way of controlling the herd, and we need to develop those techniques. Now, this was the rationale for the CIA. Um, uh, now... Uh, going forward, then Bateson is involved uh, with the Macy Foundation, which then becomes the MKUltra Projects, uh, excuse me, the Macy Conferences, which then morph into the MKUltra Projects, which are focused at the VA hospital in Palo Alto, where Bateson is in charge. And uh, this is where you get the Grateful Dead, uh, you know, Robert Hunter and uh, uh, these guys, and uh, uh, Ken Kesey. Right, the other guy who is handing out LSD to millions of children, um, he also is working there uh, with Bateson, with uh, Robert Hunter, and uh, and so you've had a, um, you know, the, this drug got slipped in, and it was for destructive purposes, and and if you want to, I want to give a piece of evidence that anyone who listens to your show can do, and in my opinion, this is really the most important act of citizenship someone in the United States can can do. Go to the 1957 Life magazine, the cover, which um, describes uh, Gordon Wasson's trip to Mexico. This trip is where he found the magic mushroom. He had his psycho psych psychedelic experiences. And this, this is the beginning of the psychedelic drug phenomena in the United States. It was May 1957. 
Skull and Bones member uh, Henry Luce was the owner of the magazine. Uh, Gordon Wasson, who was the individual who went to Mexico and found the psilocybin mushroom, had the experience, is another banker. He's a Morgan partner, means he's one of the owners of the bank. He was also the chairman of the Council of Foreign Relations. He was actually the chairman at the meeting. So you can see that this is an individual who couldn't be wired more thoroughly into the oligarchs. Um, and now you have this story that um, about his experience. Now, in, uh, in the article of Manufacturing the Deadhead, I show the actual pay requisition. So there's no longer any illusion. There's no, you can't equivocate. MKUltra paid for Wasson's trip. It was part of what's called Subproject 58. Wasson's trip to Mexico was an MK Ultra project. It is demonstrated. Now, you now look at the cover of Life magazine, and what you see is a box. The cover has this little box made in white, and inside it, it's dark in the background, and inside it are words. And the first two lines describe the... Uh, the fantastic journey and visions in the Mexican desert. The line directly underneath it ostensibly seems to be describing another article. It's not. The words are teenage allowances, right? So once you know that the journey that Life magazine is describing in the first two lines of the box are an MKUltra project, and MKUltra is studying auto-suggestion, studying crowd control, and now you see these three words, teenage allowances. You can see how evil and how long-standing the project is. That even in 1957, they were putting into effect the idea that teenagers, teenagers should be allowed to take these drugs. Teenage allowances. It's directly underneath the description of the journey. It is in the same box and in the same font, so the brain picks it all up as one pulse. And this is an MK Ultra project that is being described and is being affected, is being put into effect by the phrase teenage allowances. I mean, this is something that every citizen can do and every citizen should do because we need to go to the government with some vigor and demand an explanation demand that there be a real investigation into MKUltra because what it did was not made clear to the public, was never revealed. We still don't know. No one was ever punished. Alan Dulles, another banker who happened again to be the head of the CIA, I mean, why are bankers running the Central Intelligence Agency? But he destroyed all the documents. So this has led to a very low quality of democracy. Citizens don't know what was done to them by the government, done in a, in a nefarious you know, manner for malfeasance, for something that was damaging us. This is what we got to do. We got to we got to start. I think right here and start demanding answers. And hopefully, um, there are a few politicians out there with the courage that if we're if they're prompted by the citizens, that we can start getting to the bottom of all this. Joe, uh, on one of the on one of your interviews, uh, I think it was the catcher in the rye one. Maybe it was the Beatles one, but you talked about the concept of the lifetime actor. Mm -hmm. uh, these guys don't really lead the life. You know, someone like Gordon Wasson or someone like Timothy Leary, um, I'm not saying that they didn't do drugs, but who, who knows that whether they even took LSD or not. I'm not saying that they did it. I'm just saying there's always that possibility. 
that they're you know they're playing these kooky you know dr- drugged out deadheads kind of like Elvis Huxley. There's this myth that he you know took LSD on his deathbed. I don't know if that's true or not, but these guys are um, all about you know leading a life and and putting the stuff out there to get other people to follow the template, but never actually leading that life themselves in private. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. I think that the lifetime actor is a really important concept to understand. Um, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Another one, Jim Morrison, okay, lead singer of The Doors. He's uh, supposedly taking LSD all over the place. Um, his father was Admiral Morrison, who was in charge of the Gulf of Tonkin false flag event, right? Um, Morrison claimed that the spirit of an Indian... You know, the shaman entered into him as a young boy. This is obviously a lie. It's obviously being done just to connect his world, his life, his persona into these, uh, the archaic, you know, the, the, these, uh, these other cultural elements. Um, and so, you know, the citizen has to really be on the alert for lifetime actors because Basically, what's happening is we're being subjected to black propaganda, propaganda that people are hoisting on us for evil purposes. And for black propaganda to be effective, the person who is the victim has to give trust to the individual who is giving the propaganda. That is absolutely critical. If you Google black propaganda, you'll see a description of how it operates. And again, this is being developed by Gregory Bateson. He's the one who develops this technique, and he's the... Uh, that's why there's a book called Weaponized Anthropology, I believe, by Dr. David Price, which talks about Gregory Bateson and the development, his creation of black propaganda. Um, and so the key to black propaganda is that the person who's delivering the blow is trusted. And in order to be trusted, that individual must be a lifetime actor. Uh, you know, Gordon Wasson has to be seen as sincere when he's talking about his drug experiences. Um, the Grateful Dead have to be seen as sincere when they're encouraging you to take LSD. Ken Kesey has to be as sincere when he's giving LSD to children and saying, hey, it's a great idea for you to do it. I mean, um, if Ken Kesey, you know, he had that bust further with all the fancy day glow colors painted on it, you know, it was like this uh, uh, charming kind of fun thing for kids to join into. I mean, if he'd driven around in a bus that had pictures of a mental asylum in chains after bad LSD experiences, and he probably couldn't got the kids to take much drugs, could he? So he, he had another persona. He was a lifetime actor. Um, the lifetime actor is, is developed by the government. Uh, they do so to, to get the trust of the, uh, the population so that the lifetime actor can then deliver the destructive cultural element and the population will believe it. So uh, lifetime actors are um, they're out there. Uh, I, I think that when you look at the media personalities, a lot of these guys, have, I mean, are, are cannot possibly be so stupid as to uh, be parroting the ideas that they do. But in fact, what they really are is just lifetime actors. Uh, William Colby, who was another banker, also head of the CIA, um, he bragged that they had the entire media under control. He said that they, they bought all of the uh, newscasters and news anchors and these guys. They were all working for them. Um, so I presume by now that what we, what we perceive as media is literally you know, like 100% uh, black propaganda. 
it's all out there just to damage us. And that's why shows like the one you guys put on are so important because this is the beginning of a reaction. We have to develop our own media so we can do our own analysis, our own um, vetting of facts, and uh, and develop clear-mindedness about you know what is happening to us and what uh, we need to do to um, uh, you know make a better world. I mean, we talk about the drugs. I'll give you something that just scares the pants off me, and that's this um, herbicide glyphosate, which is uh, you know the active ingredient in what's called Roundup. I mean, virtually every GMO, every genetically modified organism, and that means all of our food supply at this point that isn't or called organic, has this substance in it. And yet when you study it, you see that it has the effect of damaging all of our enzymes because it basically uh, kills molecular life and uh, plants by binding to what's called metalloproteins, which is just another word for enzyme. And at the core of enzymes, there is always a metal element, zinc, iron. This is why when you have vitamins, you also have minerals, because this is what the body needs. The body needs the zinc, it needs the iron in order to create the enzymes for things like serotonin, which, of course, if you don't have enough of, you're either depressed or, or mentally ill. Um, so the enzymes are created by the bacteria inside our, our body called the biome. Now, when you take this glyphosate, you damage the biome. Glyphosate is a is a something that, that binds on to metal and thereby renders it uh, bioinactive. So I would hope every uh, person who is listening to this do some research into glyphosate, come to realize that every damn thing you're eating, sugar, wheat, corn, you know, canola oil, all of this stuff has glyphosate in it. And it is, in my opinion, all of it, all of it weakening us. It makes our, our fertility go way down. It makes our intellectual capacity go down. It, it increases the rates of autism. Please do the research to come to an informed op opinion about that, particularly people that wish to have children. This is something that, that we really have to push back against because you don't, you do not want glyphosate in the diets of uh, young people, either prenatal or when they're young, because this leads to autism, this damages them. And this is just another example of, uh, in my opinion, of oligarchic mischief where what they really want is a herd that's easy to control. Well, you know something? I just don't want to be in a herd that's easy to control. I want a higher quality democracy. So that means, you know, we need smart and um, courageous individuals to be in our society, and, and we're not going to get it if we keep eating glyphosate. Chris, do you have the Fletcher yes. Prouty quote, Andy? Uh, I can get it real quick. Um, it, I, think Joe, I think Joe would be interested in that quote. Cool. Yeah, because you were talking yeah, about Fletcher William Yeah, Fletcher Prouty's book about... Uh, the CIA Vietnam and the plot to assassinate J. John F. Kennedy. I haven't read it. Uh, he goes, yeah, he goes into, um, yeah, I haven't either, but I, uh, someone has sent me this and uh, says that in chapter three, he goes into detail how the CIA would fake terrorist incidents well into the 1980s. He said <laughs> he went so far as to stage battles between the U.S. and NVA forces for high-level Pentagon dignitaries. Yeah, and uh, 
I, I thought that was really interesting that that was in the book in a book about JFK. I think is that I mean I, I look at that as possibly some sort of a tell. You know, I mean, um, you know, in the yeah. but you know, of course he's dealing with the CIA, but then. You know, of course, there's been some recent developments in uh, JFK research, you know, especially about the, the Sapruder film being, uh, uh, or uh, I don't want to say hoaxed, but um, definitely it, it, it's manipulated, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for and sure, And all yeah. that, and, uh, Well, you know... And, um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, when the JFK assassination occurred, uh, the population were defenseless. I mean, we had the media controlled by this very narrow stream of information sources, Life Magazine, uh, LA Times, you know, whatever. And the citizen had no chance. You couldn't really develop your own analysis about these things. You just had to accept it, and, and you had this tragic story, lone crazy gunman, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now it looks less and less like that's real. Um, one real advantage of the Internet is that the population is no longer defenseless. I mean, we can come up with our own science, we can vet our own information, and we can do our own analysis. We don't have to just sit here and listen to uh, the stuff the government uh, gives us. I mean, there's always problems because, you know, the Internet is polluted with um, shills, people who are there just to confuse others. But, you know, we got a chance now. And I think the, it's the, the thing that has to happen is the citizen has to develop the kind of intuition to know when he's getting a, you know, a good piece of information on the Internet and when it's something that has to be suspicious. And if enough people for participate, you see, this is the, the real advantage of the Internet because BS is going to have to walk if enough people are into a thread, if enough people are exchanging information, if enough people are bringing the truth into a social media context, because then we can show, you know, what the reality is. I mean, you would never have been able to have got the Warren Commission results into the American people if the Internet had been active at that time. There would have been a rebellion. So this is uh, the hope, is that we have to use um, the power of social media not as a tool to uh, control us and diminish us, but rather something that we can use to get the truth understood and then shared among the population and the citizens. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think uh, a lot of this stuff too, that we're presented with um, it, 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 you know, there's, I've been kind of following along with so-called conspiracy research or whatever you want to call it for a good long while. I mean, about 20 years or something like that, but um I think there's something that's like conspicuously absent from a lot of the discussions that go on. It's like this whole idea that, um, okay, when we're looking at something that's presented to us through the television screen and through the mass media, um, how do we know that that event even actually took place and that we're not looking at something that's could, could totally contrived? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, like the Boston, uh, nobody you know, talks about that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I hate to say it, but I, I, I'm at the point where I'm just skeptical about, it. I mean, you know, I don't care what it is. If I'm not seeing it with my own senses, I'm just not buying it. Um, I think that the media is controlled, and I think the events are there to manipulate the minds of the masses in general, and so I can't trust any of it. Right. Um, when an event yeah, occurs yeah, you like said the Bo uh, You said Boston? Yeah, the Boston bombing. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's probably the most fake thing I've ever seen. And it's ridiculous. <laughs> 
I mean, I've never seen anything so stupid. I mean, the guy with the yeah. with the leg blown off and has a smile on his face. I mean, I've been in I've been in uh, situations where people have had uh, serious injuries, and I can tell you, they don't have that expression on their face. They're howling in <laughs> agony. You know, they're clenched. Oh yeah. You know, okay, so you don't have your legs blown off and you're just sitting there smiling and calm-faced. I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, this this is um, an opportunity, right? This is uh, the kind of information that the uh, uh, Internet can be used to determine what is real and then the uh, reality can be circulated, not just the, uh, the, the, the version of uh, history the government wants us to accept. Yeah, did you see the the alleged bomb, uh, Boston bombing victim? She's walking around supposedly with an with a with an injured ankle. She took shrapnel supposedly in the ankle, and she's walking around with crutches, uh, with a crutch on the wrong side. So she's not she's a heavy set woman, and she's not taking the weight off of that foot. She's putting the weight on the foot. And yeah, like, I thought that was. The whole I mean, thing. I don't have any more obvious you can get. Yeah, it was just pathetic. And I, I mean, the good news is that uh, a larger and larger fraction of the public are aware of the potential of false flags. You know, they're aware now that these things could be faked. And I think that this is um, a good first step. You know, now we have to take a second step and develop an independent scientific review process where whatever the government and media claim goes into, um, a, you know, a, a a process which is open to public scrutiny. So it isn't just a, a commission that's giving us their report, but rather the claims uh, that are made are, you know, subject subjected to actual scientific scrutiny, public scrutiny, and, uh, and, and then people can start developing their own ideas. I mean, I honestly believe that if the Internet is left to stand for another 20 years, the oligarchs will lose, a, will lose power. Because I think that as good as they are and as good at controlling us as they've become, the human mind is really a tough thing to, um, to push down forever. And you start putting these kinds of facts into motion and people will start to wake up. So, um, you know, hats off to you guys. You're doing a great job. And um, and we need, uh, you know, a uh, hundred thousand uh, shows like yours. We need to completely replace the, the mainstream media. It just has to be ended. We, the, the, it should not exist. It's a bad thing. It's evil. And, and there should be nothing but um, these kinds of shows, which are, um, you know, coming from the public and are open to public review. Yeah, I, I agree. I appreciate, I appreciate you doing this and talking to us here. Hey, and, my pleasure, uh, and, you know, yes. We can, yes, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, we can, appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. It's fun, and I'm glad. I really want to help you guys. I mean, whatever I can do to help, just let me know. Anytime I, you know, can come out and, and, and I, if I have any, anything you think I can contribute, I'm always happy to because I just think that what you're doing is really, really, really important. Oh, thanks. Thank uh, you, yeah. you know, um, you know, yeah. Maybe, maybe you can come on uh, another time after we've had a little bit more um, time to look into Caesar's Messiah, and we could have a we could have a faw debate, sure. nice debate. No, no, happy to. It's always fun, and uh, it's a great idea. I mean, you know, the thing is, uh, I don't like scholarship that hides in a box. You know, that's authoritative, that uses ad hominem. I mean. 
you know, what I really like is stuff that's open for the public to criticize. And I should, uh, you know, take my own advice, right? I mean, I've put out all these theories and, uh, you know, explanations. And so instead of hiding, I'm always open for debate. I'm always open for questions. I never shy away. And, and I'm, I'm very, very happy. And I would, you know, anytime you guys want to talk about Caesar's Messiah or Shakespeare or the Beatles or anything, you know, bring on all the critics you want. I'm always happy to take questions and do the best I can to, you know, present my side of the story. Oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be cool because because I I I do have questions about you know the Bible and stuff like that. Um, I've I've read it, the Bible probably twice, and um, but yeah, I'm like, uh, well, I'm I'm saying this in a nice way because I I uh, I go out of my way to read your stuff, and. Um, I've always you've all, I've I've even heard you on Christian radio shows and you're actually more eloquent and more nice than the Christian guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, you know, I, but, like, but, I, I'm, as far as I know, there's very few guys that actually go on to Christian, um, you know, talk shows and take criticism and uh, you know let them ask spontaneous questions and stuff because normally it's such a hate fest. But I, as far as I'm concerned, great. Let let them just bring any anything they can. I mean. You know, look, we're in a real tough situation uh, as a people. And I think one of the problems is that um, what is being sold to us as a truth is being given as indoctrination, you know. So the, the thing to improve it, in my opinion, one of the things is to uh, let criticism become a little more normal, you know. Let uh, when you know, and that's that right. because we've lost that, in my opinion, as a you know, just a, culturally, we we don't we don't really um, often have like I mean, for example, when nine one one, when you have like the NIST commission come up with their explanation of the collapse of Building Seven, well, man, wouldn't it have been great, you know, if there had been um, a, a chance for debate on some of their conclusions, right? Wouldn't have that been just wonderful, right? And yet they don't take questions. They don't permit debate. And you know something? I'm not going to follow in their footsteps. That I want to go the other direction. So, yeah, I, I really am a big proponent of criticism. And, in fact, it's really important for the citizen to develop the, um, uh, the capacity to know how to do that and to demand it. It's, it, is a, it is a right of every human to be able to analyze and criticize Events that are uh, dramatically affecting our lives and culture, like nine one one. There is no way that it's acceptable for something like the NIST report to exist, where it's just handed down like from God, and everyone just has to accept it. And uh, I would say that uh, Bible scholars are kind of the same way. In general, they uh, put out their books, and then they are just unavailable as far as uh, you know discussion about them. So I, I just that's just I think the wrong direction, and I want to go the other way, and uh, you know bring on critics and uh, bring on questions. I think it's great. Have you ever spoken to Robert M. Price? Oh yeah, I had a whole debate no, with Bob. I mean, it was like two and a half hours. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that was a. It was oh cool. A, Where, is that on? Is that online? <laughs> yeah. Okay, he wrote a, a critical review of Caesar's Messiah, and then he agreed to a debate, and we had. Um, we were on for over two hours, um, and uh, Bob and I, I think are in pretty good terms at this point. He asked me to come on and write a piece for 
for his uh, uh, journal of higher criticism, which never got off the ground, but he was very friendly toward me. But, um, you know, that debate is, I'm sure, available on the Internet. People can, can listen to it. Um, uh, it. It is a fact that the day after the debate, Price announced that he would never again do a public debate. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I don't think I lost. <laughs> so, but that's, that's the thing that's is, is that you know debates um, are they can be really useful, but it's often just a, a you know a kind of a food fight, you know, with screaming and yelling and stuff. And I mean, yeah. I'm willing to to do those things, but I don't really think there's much value in them. Um, so, you know, when, when someone is is like uses obscenities or is insulting and stuff, I tend to just kind of say, well, oh, you know, yeah. this isn't really valuable, and I hope they, uh, you know, the audience doesn't mind if I check out, but I just, what's the point? You know, it's like a... Like a oh, darn, right. oh, darn, because that's what we were going to do next time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I no you, know, you know what? Listen, okay, you know what, I'm, you... I'm up for it, guys. Well, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll work on my insults. You know, I'm kind of, not, this, I'm like, I don't think it's my, my strong suit, but I'll try to get ready for you. No, it's okay. Yeah, I've been... Well, just watch some. Just watch some mainstream television. You'll be okay. You know, I, I swear I don't watch yeah, any of it. I've completely. Um, I think that it's evil. I think it's um, designed to hurt me, and I just don't watch it. Like I don't eat glyphosate foods anymore. At least I try. Yeah. Not, you know, but I mean, we're I we're, we're, just, we're in agreement you know, there. I try to eat organic foods strictly, and. Um, I try to not watch uh, the mainstream media, you know. And besides, why should I when there's shows like yours out there that I can listen to and actually learn something? Oh, there you go. I mean, you, well, you said, it's you a said weaponized it. weapon. <laughs> TV is a weapon. Yeah. Weaponized information. Hey, information is weaponized. I mean, uh, we were just we were just talking about mm -hmm. this the other week. How uh, if you you know I I keep going back to this book, but you know this guy. He's a prophet, and I say that in quotation marks because uh, he's obviously not a prophet. He's obviously part of the plan. Was a guy named Alvin Toffler. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Sure. Um, and he wrote a book called Future Shock back in 1971. And along with a bunch of other uh, guys, like I'm sure you've heard of, like Bernard Burleson and um, uh, Theodore Adorno, who, sure. who some people let. Who, who some people allege Adorno actually wrote a lot of the Beatles songs. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, these guys talk about weaponized information and actually using uh, information as a battering ram to numb people to sleep. So, like, when you, when you have so much information and so much, you know, culture, or in America, lack of culture, when, you know, you've got television shows about every possible, you know, every possible method of cooking that you pro that you could possibly think of you've got television shows about pawn shops and all that type of stuff variety is not really the spice of life it's actually really numbs you to not even think because you couldn't even absorb all of that information even if you wanted to yeah and it's all it's all brain dead material i mean you're not engaging the person's mind to um uh, you know, to the higher, more eloquent levels of cognition. I mean, this is this is one of the reasons why I don't watch it. 
is that I know that one of the things that they're able to do with their shows is basically create a kind of distraction that takes you into a, a diminished place in terms of your brain function so that the uh, the yeah. thought processes simply are turned off. And if they can do that, you know, four or five hours a day over the course of your life, they can basically just lower your ability to, to cognate. You know, you can't think anymore. So... Uh, you know, just stay away from that crap. It's it's addicting, but it's uh, as dangerous to your soul as heroin is. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. You know, um, and, uh, oh, oh, say say one more thing, uh, Chris, because um, I'm going to have to go here. I'm pulling into my driveway. Okay. Uh, well, real quick, I I would just want to bring up because you were talking about Adorno uh, in the. In his book, uh, The Culture Industry, um, he just basically says flat out in so many words that the whole War of the Worlds uh, radio broadcast by uh, Orson Welles and all that was a test to see the the power, the influence of th that sort of thing on the population. Absolutely. And Absolutely. It yeah. was a test. There was not, I mean, they were just trying to see what level of believability they had. And, um, you know, uh, they got the result they wanted. They saw how gullible we were. This is, this is where we have to fight back. See, this is the problem. We, we have to stop being gullible. No more false flags. I mean, that was just a false flag that, uh, revealed itself. But, uh, uh, you know, others have occurred and they don't. And then they, but they, they get the, uh, the terror to get into the mind. And then the next thing you know, you've got a foreign policy. Uh, that is seemingly coherent because, you know, we've got to fight back. And the next thing you know, you've got body bags and, uh, you know, civilizations that are being pulverized into dust because uh, of a false flag. So, uh, you know, we just have to make sure that every citizen has, you know, we, we have to create a new kind of um, civics lesson. Uh, one in which the first thing is that, you know, it's like the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment is, no more gullibility to false flags. That's commandment one. You know, number two, I won't believe anything right. that uh, you know uh, is uh, is told by uh, you know TV uh, bubblehead. I mean, I, I mean, I, I top of my head, I can't come up with the right ones, but you can see where I'm going with it. You know, we need a different kinds of civic lessons to create a different thou, kind thou, of civic. Thou, sh thou shall have no more talking heads before me. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And see, so this is the thing is that, uh, you know, we just need a new civics program that takes into account black propaganda, uh, takes into account the media control that the oligarchs have and, uh, you know, tries to create a higher level of democracy. We want a higher quality of democracy where the uh, citizen benefits from the political process and not well, I, just, uh, you know, the oligarchs. I would like to see it. What I'd like to see happen, what I think is maybe a better course of events that would happen, would that be people get to the point where they just ignore it. And then right. if nobody's turning on the TV, then it has zero effect. If it's sitting there off, it has no effect. If, if they have a, if they have a war and nobody comes, what are they going right. to do? That's if they exactly. have an election and nobody shows up, what are they going to do? That's so right. there is no need no to way. go through their processes that they've set up. For us to affect yeah. change, I, I don't. I don't believe that's even necessary. I believe if people are wo woken up enough, then they don't even need to entertain the idea of um, reforming the system or anything like that. They just 
they go off and form their own uh, society ba- based on truth. They that 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 would be the best course of action, I think. That would, sounds uh, good to me. Uh, that I would hope to see. Yeah. Right. I mean, the oligarchs tend Absolutely. not to give up power without a struggle, but that would be wonderful to have that kind of a result. Hey, hey, Chris. Yeah, what are um, they going to do? Run can... around and grab everybody by the collar and make them do what they want? You know, can't do that. What's that, John? Chris, you, you should you should uh, email Joe the uh, call you did to the social to the uh, social security index on nine eleven. I'm sure I'm sure he would think that was very interesting. Oh yeah. Okay. We don't. We don't uh, have to talk about that. But but, uh, but yeah, you should just email that him so he could he could see it. I'd love to see it. But, uh, all right. Okay, um, I'll go ahead and drop I it into you. I have to go. Um, so, yeah, uh, I got to take off, guys. But look, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend time with you, and I'm available anytime in the future that I can be of use again. Okay. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank yeah, you, guys. Go good and, job. Uh, you you want to you you say your website real quick? Okay, yeah. You can, uh, oh, if you're right, interested yeah. in buying the books, go to postflaviana.org or to caesarsmessiah.com. Uh, two websites that uh, uh, you can buy uh, at caesarsmessiah.com. You can buy uh, the documentary that was made. There's a number of uh, films that are related to Caesar's Messiah, the book. Uh, and uh, postflaviana.org, you can also see a lot of articles about modern culture I've written that are, uh, you know, you can you can participate. There, There's criticism and debate going on all the time there. So uh, just come and check it out, caesarsmessiah.com or postflaviana.org. Thank you, guys. Great. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Joe. Thanks. Bye, Joe. Take care. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.